29 is a global network of over 700 churches worshiping in 50 countries with nearly 30 languages. And we are committed to planting healthy, multiplying churches in every corner of the world. God is a global God and that he works through different ethnicities and cultures and languages around the world. Being faithful to God's great commission is to make disciples and to plant churches. Churches characterized by theological clarity, cultural engagement, and missional innovation. We believe that uh, the church is God's primary mission strategy for establishing his kingdom and his presence on earth. We want to reach people with the gospel, and our reach is amplified through Acts 29 as a network, so more people will know and worship him. Each one of our members has been blessed by all the training that we have received as planters. We want our church to be a praying church and also a church that disciples others. This is what we do and this is who we are. We are people who plant churches. So Acts 29 accomplishes its mission uh, primarily through three things. By assessing potential church planters. We provide continued assistance for churches and leaders through coaching, trainings, and also relational connection. We get to collaborate with the whole Bride of Christ to plant churches, not only just in our areas, but we partner globally to plant churches. And as we partner together with Acts 29, with churches around the world, our efforts are multiplied, and God is glorified when we work together as a church. This is Acts 29. 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 Well, good morning, church. It's good to see you. Thanks for gathering here this morning, and thanks for bringing the church uh, into this space. Uh, for those of you that are here in person, for those of you that are gathered with us online, thanks for bringing the church into your home, your living room, dining room. Uh, we're grateful to be invited into those spaces. Um, and yeah, we didn't start this sermon the way we normally do with the little video about the book of John. We're getting to the book of John, uh, but this is something that as a church uh, not only for our church, but churches literally. There's over 700 churches around the world that are celebrating today, this church planting Sunday, to put before us the work that God has called us to do. And as God would have it, even we're going to be in John chapter 4, which I think is a remarkable text to be in as we talk about these things. But I want to highlight and then just spend a moment to, to pray together. But um, many of you are aware of this, uh, but if you're newer to Cross Points, um, you need to be reminded a bit of just our, our story or maybe hear it for the first time that. We, 12 years ago, were a church plant. I don't know when one stops being a church plant, but we were a brand new uh, church plant uh, 12 years ago. And by God's grace, the desire always was to be a church that would help plant other churches. And so that, by God's grace, has happened. We want to see more of that happen. We want to give you an update and even some plans to make that happen in the, the upcoming year. But um, big picture, we just want to stop and celebrate what God has done and what God is doing and the, the part that we get to play and to know that there's this global movement and it's beyond obviously just even the church planning network that we're part of, uh, but certainly within Acts 29, God is doing some really remarkable uh, things. And so one thing I just want to put before you um, so that you are aware of this and can celebrate this, like you are actually helping to plant churches. Like your involvement here in the life of Crosspoint has historically and is continuing and will into the future be part of planting churches. And that can look and like take on a kind of variety of shapes and that, that sort of thing. But let me just remind you of just a few of the things. Like you being part of this local church has implications and ramifications that go beyond just this community here, that by God's grace, you've been part of a church that has helped raise up and then send out church planters, all right? And so many of you remember Jamie Vizzini, who served with us and now planted a church in Peachtree City, Georgia, a cross point church up there outside of Atlanta, and they are doing remarkably well, all right? And so we love the work that God is doing there. Many of you know and remember Brian and Karina Sullivan, who were here um, the early years of Cross Points, all right? And we got to send them out to South Florida to plant Cross Point Jupiter, and that is happening. And so there's very practical, like, people that have been with us that have been sent out. There's also the reality that 
every time you make a financial contribution to the work of this local congregation, it doesn't all just stay here. Like there's a conviction that, hey, as people would tithe and that they would give, that we want to do that as a church. And so at a minimum, 10% of everything that comes in in gifts to this local body goes back out to help fund church planners. So like right now, whether you're aware of it or not, Every time you give, part of that is going to help fund Crosspoint Jupiter in South Florida, the work of Crosspoint Espanol, our Spanish-speaking congregation in the Orlando area. It's doing work there. Um, I, for even safety reasons, won't give all of these details, but you guys are helping fund two different church plants, one in North Africa and one in the Middle East, all right, that are, that are happening. Um, that's just a part of what God is doing. In addition, everything that you give, there's part of it, there's 2% that goes to Acts 29 to raise up, to train, to assess, to encourage the ongoing work of church planning. And so when you give, you are actually helping to plant churches. And so for one, just thank you. Thanks for being part of this global movement that is taking place. And then, this seems like forever ago, right? Like I literally was like, was, was this at the beginning of 2020? Like, I'm just, you know, we're having like this mental block with the whole last 12 months, right? But um, some of you, will remember this, um, and we should remember this, and we should celebrate this, and let me give you an update. In January of 2020, we did our next version of the Mishpat Project, which is this word that's talking about like seeking justice, and one of the best ways to seek justice, like wholeness flourishing for the world at large is to plant more churches, and so we were able to partner with not only Acts 29, but an organization called Compassion International. Many of you may be familiar with their work and helping to sponsor kids. But I just want you to know, like, because of your generosity and an outside like, matching donor, $75,000 was raised. Like, that actually did happen. So 2020 wasn't all lost, right? So that's a really good, that was a really good thing. Now, some things got put on hold because after the money was raised to plant this church, we were asked to... Uh, sorry, we asked, like, hey, just pair us with an Acts 29 church plant somewhere in the world. Like, we didn't necessarily care where it was. And so um, looking particularly maybe South or Central America. And so there's some work that's been happening. But if compassion, as you can imagine, a lot of the things kind of came to a screeching halt for them. Just you couldn't gather people. You couldn't do assessments, all, all of that. But I just want you to know, we heard even last week that in the next 30 days, they hope to have some church planners being assessed, maybe in particular in Bolivia, so looking at some other areas. But the reality is this, like once that happens, like we will be matched with a church planner. And so the funds that have already been given by you guys are going to help to not only fund a church planter and the planting work there, to build a community center. From when, Then they'll be able to gather kids from the impoverished areas surrounding that whatever particular region we happen to be in, and kids will come and they'll get educated, they'll be trained in the Bible, they'll be taught the gospel, they'll be building relationships, and so a church will meet there on Sunday, but throughout the week it'll be used as this community center, and then after that takes place, right? I mean, I'm forgetting how amazing all, all of this is, but the excitement, we will then be given a list of names of children that are part of that new work there, and we will have an opportunity as a church to say, hey, can I sponsor this particular child? So as families, as individuals, or maybe a community group coming together, whatever it looks like, to sponsor kids. And then it gets even better. Like, this will be probably a couple years down the road, but then we'll be organizing trips to go down and meet with the church plant that, we're, that we've been helping support and meet the kids that we've actually been sponsoring. And so all of that is because you're part of this work. You're helping to plant churches. And so if you want more detail on that, because even for me, it was like, man, that seems like forever ago, right? And it was literally just a little over a year, but you can go to cplife.church slash mishpot, all right? And you'll get all the information or go to the message notes on cplife.church and there'll be a couple things there. There'll be a link out to the mishpot project as well. Hopefully you got one of these. There are extras on the table. If you didn't on your way in, this is just a bit of a summary of the network that we're part of. Some of the works of, of Acts 29, if you want to view it digitally, if you're gathering with us from home right now, again, go to the message notes at cplife.church, um, and you'll see a button there that says click to view this, and there you can view all the kind of the digital version of this and learn a bit more about this work that God is doing. So 
Church Planning Sunday. It's so exciting that we get to be part of this. I want to pray not only for our church, but I want to pray for the churches in the network. And then we're going to jump into our series through the book of John. And by God's grace, we get to look at John chapter 4, which is just this remarkable text. One of my favorites in the scriptures. And it helps us understand we are the people of God sent on the mission of God empowered by God to do this work for the glory of God. Like it's all about God, but we get to participate. We're going to see that in the text this morning. But if you would, bow your heads. Let's pray. Let's pray for God's work through church planting around the world and in and through our church as well. So God, we give you praise for the work that you've called us to. It is a joy to be able to serve you in the work of being a church that helps to plant churches. Um, God, we want to see more of that happen. Um, God, we bring before you even just some of the, I think, the, the frustration of this past year, some plans that we had and things that felt like they got, you know, they did get put on hold. But I thank you that the gospel is continuing to advance, that churches are continuing to be planted, that people are meeting Jesus. We're thankful for the work that you are doing and the plants that we currently are supporting and part of. And we are so excited as well about the Acts 29 and Compassion plant uh, that we get to do hopefully here in this uh, next year, God. And so I pray that you would be connecting us with just the right church planner and just the right area. Um, God, I pray for the kids that we might be able to sponsor as a church and for the uh, just an ongoing relationship that would go on, God, for decades, we would pray. And I pray that you would help us to be people that think beyond just right here in our location, all the things that are going on, but that we would have more and more of a heart for communities that need churches to be planted both here locally and around the world. And God, we're just really thankful that we get to be a part of it. And so God, I ask for your blessing upon uh, your church, certainly in general, but specifically for those that are part of this network of Acts 29. God, I ask that you would do a multiplying work. I ask that you would work in such a way that is so clear, God, that you are doing it, that we can't take any credit for it. And so would you do that multiplying work of multiplying disciples and churches? Um, we're just thankful. Um, God, thank you for your work. It's because churches got planted, um, God, that people took that call seriously, um, that hundreds and now thousands of years later, like we're here in this particular space, in this time, in this community. And so we're just thankful. Thank you for, we're thankful for the story that we get to be part of. Continue to do your work, we pray for your glory and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So make sure, yeah, if you didn't get one of the brochures, grab one of those. Uh, make sure to visit the Mishpot page um, as well. Learn more about the opportunities that will be coming. And as we get more information, we're gonna be sure to share that with you, some exciting things coming up. So as I said, we're continuing our series called Come and See. And this theme is gonna be all over this passage this morning of this invitation. Like when we meet Jesus, when we encounter Jesus, as we're gonna see this woman encounter Jesus in John chapter four, her response is not, I gotta go study and get everything all right theologically and get it all organized and have it systematically. She's just like, you gotta come and see. Come and meet this man, Jesus. And it's just this remarkable thing. And so we're going to be in John chapter four. So if you brought a Bible, turn there, or again, go to cplife.church and swipe over to the card that says message notes. What I'm going to do, because it's a lengthier text, is just take it in sections, all right? And so we're going to start by looking at the first few verses here. We're going to look at the first eight, and I want to just read that and talk about the context, this passage is amazing. It is just loaded. There's just layer upon layer. There's so much good stuff in here. And it all flows out of an understanding of the context, some details that were given in the first eight verses. So let me read this, and then we'll work through that and then move on to the next couple of sections. This is entitled Jesus and the Samaritan Woman. Perhaps you're familiar with this. If you're not, hopefully you understand a bit more of it. And if you're familiar with it, hopefully you will see it in a new and fresh light and be encouraged and reminded of the story that we get to be part of by God's grace. So beginning in chapter four, verse one, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. And he had to travel through Samaria so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. 
and it was about noon. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Now, there's a few things that we need to look at, three key things about, about Samaria, about this woman, and about the time of day. But before even getting into that, like because I think the Bible's kind of funny, and I think there's some, some humor in it, um, but also in that, some deep theological truths, it tells us, right, like Jesus sat down because he's worn out. It's been a long journey, all right? So if you picture Jesus, certainly he is fully God, yes and amen to that, but he's also fully man, which means he got tired, he got worn out, he got hungry, he got thirsty, all right? And so there's that aspect. That's not the funny part. The funny part is the disciples have journeyed in the same, you know, the same actual distance. They've walked the same steps, the same dusty path, and he's like, hey, why don't you go into town and get us some lunch? I'm gonna sit here, right? And so they run off to go get a snack for the, for the group, get some food together, and it's in this moment that Jesus is gonna have this encounter. And the scriptures tell us a few details that are monumentally important. The first is they're in Samaria. And you may be aware of this, but in case you're not, the Jews and the Samaritans despised one another. The Jews looked down their nose at the Samaritans. The Samaritans were those that were kind of this hybrid, like they had some Jewish ancestry mixed with some of the, like kind of the surrounding pagan nations, and they didn't worship in the same exact way that the Jews did, and they just loathed them. They literally did. They, they praised God that they weren't a Samaritan. Like, that was the disposition. There was nothing friendly between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so to be in Judea, to travel north to Galilee, you could either go through Samaria, that's the most direct route, but oftentimes what the Jewish people would do is they'd say, okay, we're gonna head, we're gonna head east, we're gonna cross the Jordan River, then we're gonna go up. they take this long, you know, kind of circular route to get to where they wanted to go. Because the last thing they wanted was to be in the land of the Samaritans. Like they wanted to avoid it at all costs, all right? And so Jesus doesn't go that route. He's like, guys, come on. We're gonna go right through, through the heart of Samaria. And not only that, as Jesus sends them in to get some food, he interacts with this woman that's there, all right? What Jesus is doing in this moment is he is obliterating every boundary that would have been put up kind of culturally there. For one, he's in Samaria. Good Jews don't go there. So he's there and he's already obliterating that boundary. And then a Jewish man would never talk to a woman, let alone a Samaritan woman, all right? So he's just ramping up the intensity of this. But Jesus does. And so he's already kind of broken some of the customs of going to Samaria. Then this woman shows up and he's interacting with her. But it even gets more interesting, more profound. There's, there's more boundaries sort of being broken here because it tells us the time of day, which seems maybe insignificant at first unless you understand historically, culturally what was going on. Maybe your translation says at the sixth hour, the way it gets translated, what I read is it's noon. It's high noon. Now, if you were to travel back a couple thousand years ago, what you would know is that every day the women in the town would gather the buckets and oftentimes maybe there'd be two of them and they'd have something on their shoulders and they would literally, they would, they would fill the buckets and they would carry them back into town to be able to be used in their home throughout the day. And if you were in that part of the world, all right, you know that it gets very hot, it gets very uncomfortable, right? It gets very Florida very quickly, right? Um, and so what they would do, because they were wise, they were smart, they wanted to not be as, un, you know, they wanted to have as much comfort as possible, is you would go, you wouldn't put that off. You would go first thing, first item of business when you would get up is we gotta go get water. And there'd be a community that would travel together, there'd be a group of women that would travel there together. So what do we hear about this woman? She's there at noon. And as we get to know her story in the next section, this is not insignificant. This is a very purposeful detail that's given here because it's telling us something about this woman. It's telling us that she doesn't want to see anybody. She didn't wake up late that day. In fact, her normal pattern, her plan, what she was intentional with is like, let all the other women go. Let them go there in the cool of the day. I will go at the time when I'm guaranteed Nobody else will be there. Because this woman is carrying shame. She's 
Shame, feels shame about her story. She knows that she's the talk of the town. She knows that the other women there despise her. And now we have the Messiah in Samaria talking to a woman, but not just talking to a woman, talking to a woman who doesn't even fit in with the other Samaritan women, so much so that she would go at noon where she's guaranteed to not be around anybody. And Jesus is like, that's who I'm going to have a conversation with. All right, so we've got Samaria, we've got the woman, and now at noon, and all of this is significant. And then Jesus' response as this first section ends is, give me a drink. There would be no categories for this. Like this woman, this, this would be as crazy as, right, like I'm interacting with somebody and they tell me that they've got COVID and they're drinking water, right? And I say, hey, can I have a sip out of that same glass? You'd be like, what in the world are you doing? Like you don't do that, right? Come on. It would be more than that. Like this response, this question by Jesus, this request, can you give me a drink, would be earth-shattering to her. A Jew is talking to a Samaritan. A man is talking to a woman. And this man is talking to me. I didn't think I was going to see anybody here. Like I don't want to. I'm embarrassed about who I am in the world. So now let's look at the conversation that Jesus has with her. Because what we see and as we think about the work that God has called us to, and in particular in church planting, God is calling us as his people to continue to move towards those that are on the fringes, those that are marginalized, those that, that don't know if there would be grace for them. Let's go. And so here's the thing. As we read this, ask yourself again, where are you in the story? Because on the one hand, we're supposed to see ourselves as we are the woman at the well. We are the Samaritan woman who's carrying shame, and we don't know if we too can be loved, if we can experience God's grace. And yet, we are also called to follow our rabbi, Jesus, who goes to those that are marginalized, goes to those who are filled with shame, goes to those that don't know if they could ever be loved and accepted, and invites them into the family. And so there's this sense of like, will we heed the call to experience the grace of God and to extend the grace of God to other people. And so there's this conversation now that begins to take place. Look with me at verses 9 to 26. So she says, she's got a very logical response. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Verse 10, well, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, well, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well, and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Verse 15, Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Verse 16, go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've actually had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And at this moment, her response is like, uh-oh, oh dang, right? Like he knows everything. Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when tr the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then the biggest mic drop moment, Jesus says in verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, am he. He makes this remarkable declaration to a Samaritan who's despised by the Jews, to a woman, and this woman in particular. She hears this declaration from the lips of Jesus. 
This is telling us something about the disposition of our God that Jesus would make this declaration in this place to this woman at this time of day. Jesus is saying, everybody can get in on this. Like, I've got a message for you. I've got an invitation, and I am here to extend the love of God to you. It doesn't matter what your past has been. I can bring redemption. I can bring healing. Will you actually trust who I am? And so Jesus tells her in this, we won't be able to look at every detail here, but he says, the water that I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. So that's at the end of verse 14. And the woman's response, as we'll see in a moment, she's like, uh, yes, please. Like, how do I get in on that? But what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is always doing is, yes, there's an offer at one level, but it's meant to go deeper. She's thinking of just physical water. She's just thinking about, can I get some of this particular water that you're offering? And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm offering you my very presence. Because just a few chapters later, Jesus is going to talk about thirst. And he's going to talk about the human condition. And he's going to talk about what will quench our thirst as when God gives to us this river of living water. And what he's telling us is that's the spirit of God. So let me read this. It'll be a sneak preview for a few weeks from now. But John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. Those who believed in Jesus were going to receive the Spirit, for the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. What's on offer here is more than just simply having some practical, pragmatic needs met. And God cares about those things. Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer, like, give us to stay our daily bread. He absolutely cares about that. But Jesus is also interested, far more interested, I would say, that this passage tells us, of getting to kind of the issue beneath the issue. Like, what is your real need? What is your real thirst? What is your real hunger? And what the woman is facing a couple thousand years ago is meant for us to face this morning and just ask, like, what, what are we looking for from God? Because I think what she's doing, maybe a way to think about this is that she says, sir, give me this water, is she is opting, and what she's kind of zeroed in on is just, just help me with the practical. Like, give me the pragmatic. Like, I, that's what I want. I don't want to have to come to this well anymore at noon. If there can be this living water, if there can be this sort of source that means I don't have to go out here and I don't have to venture out alone and make sure that all the other women have kind of cleared the, the scene. Oh, man, that would be amazing. Like, if I could just kind of stick, kind of just keep to myself and not bother anybody and not have to face, like, what my story is and all that's been going on, that would be fantastic. But Jesus is always wanting to do something more. Jesus loves this woman too much to simply say, okay, yeah, like, I'll install some sort of faucet there that you'll have water that will just flow anytime you want it. He's telling her, you can get in on something that will truly satisfy. And as John 7 tells us, the only thing that satisfies, that, that well, I mean, to have that sort of connection comes when we realize we have the presence of God that's taken up residence in our life. If you're here this morning as a Christian, that's your story. And so what Jesus does now, all right, which seems a little out of the blue. Like they're having this conversation and then did you notice Jesus, like his response after she says, can I have this water? He's like, hey, how about you go get your husband? And suddenly it moves from what might've been probably a pleasant, or pleasant conversation to a bit more of a confrontation. But he's not shaming her. Rather, he's wanting her to examine her story. He's wanting her to examine what her life has been up to this point. And it's not just for her. He's wanting me to examine my life. He's wanting you to examine your life. Because what's taking place in here is there's an exposing of our idols, of an idol or idols. Like Jesus loves her so much that he's like, hey, we gotta talk about this. We actually have to engage in this. And so he says to her, like, hey, go get your husband. And then what does she say? She's like, well, I don't have a husband. And so Jesus knows, because he's Jesus, there's more to this story, right? So on the technicality, yes, she is answered correctly. Yeah, I don't have a husband. 
But Jesus then begins to point out, sure, I understand, you don't have a husband right now. But previously, you've had five, and now you still have a man in your life. You just haven't committed to him, and he hasn't committed to you. You're just living together. So can we just be clear about what we're talking about here? And she has this like, oh, I see you're a prophet. That would probably be a fair response, right? What is Jesus doing here? Is he trying to pile on? Is he trying to be like the women that would go to the well early in the day and they would talk about her and you know, uh, speak bad about this woman? No, that is not it. That is not the disposition of our God. He's not heaping shame upon her, but rather, before he's gonna talk to her about the good news, he's got to level with her and help her to see the bad news, to help her to see where she is stuck right now. Because I think it's fair to surmise that this woman's story, the idolatry, what she has elevated to a position of ultimate importance is she can't feel okay in the world unless she's in the arms of a particular man. And she's tried one guy and then another and then another and then another and on and on it goes. And Jesus is saying, you can keep living that way. But if you do, you will continually thirst, you'll continually be dissatisfied and there'll be continual shame. And you might look at this and be like, okay, well, I'm in the clear. I, I haven't had five husbands. And you're like, woo this passage doesn't apply to me, right? It's exposing idolatry. So for this woman, that was her thing. But the reality is all of us are like this woman. We're all prone to look to something that is not ultimate. The reality for you and me and every single person that's ever walked the face of this earth or ever will, we're all worshipers. The Samaritan woman is a worshiper, but what she was worshiping, what was ultimate for her was to find her identity in how she was loved and received and accepted by the men of the community. And let's not think for a moment that that story doesn't continue to play out, but there's also all kinds of other ways in which we take a good gift that the Lord has given us and we make it ultimate. And when we do, maybe the image to think about as we talk about thirst is we think we will satisfy ourselves by continuing to consume more of what we already have. And it's as obnoxious and as silly and stupid as us filling a cup with sand and then drinking it and saying, oh, I hope my thirst will be quenched now. Jesus comes to her in love and just says, listen, like this sort of image, like you're filling this up, like that has been your story so far. You're filling it with sand and you're drinking it and you're hoping some way, somehow, oh, maybe I'll find satisfaction here. Maybe my thirst will be quenched. And Jesus is saying, you're just making yourself more thirsty. What if I offered you something that will truly satisfy? But in order to appreciate that, to understand that, you've got to get at the root issue. And so one of the most helpful books, Counterfeit Gods by Tim Keller, speaks of this. Let me read you this this quote, and he talks about idolatry, right? And if that term is new to anybody, because we might picture in our mind, like, okay, well, did I commit adultery this week? Like, idolatry this week? Like, I didn't go, like, carve something out of wood or stone and bow down to it in the backyard? Like, am I in the clear? Because it's any time we take something and make it ultimate. And so he says this, a counterfeit God or idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. Now look at this list here. It can be family and children or career and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or saving face and social standing. It can be a romantic relationship or peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it is really idolatry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. The most accurate way to describe that is worship. This woman, her misdirected worship was toward 
how men would treat her, her finding her identity, am I loved here? And the more she pursued that, what ended up happening is now there's more shame and she's wondering and struggling with, can I actually be loved? Am I worthy of love? This is why she's at the well at noon. And if people could know what's going on in your heart and in my heart, our place would be at the well at noon because we don't want to be seen. We don't want to be exposed. This is too personal. This is too raw. This is too vulnerable. And yet, the God of the universe comes alongside and says, can we talk? Can we talk about these things? And he's asking us to consider questions like, what actually has you trapped? What is the thing you've been pursuing? And the reality, it's like, been, it's like you're drinking a you know, tall glass of sand. You're like, man, this isn't satisfying. Like, what has you trapped? What is it that is getting your attention? What is it that you're worshiping? And the most important question, will we actually repent of that? And don't hear repentance as this sort of groveling, as if you've got to make yourself acceptable to God by, by like how you respond or are you sad enough, but rather repentance is simply, I'm going to move in a new direction. I'm going to believe what God has to say about me. I'm going to believe that forgiveness is possible. I'm going to believe that when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he actually meant it. That's what we're talking about here. Now, her response in the moment isn't, oh, yeah, let me, let me repent. Look, look what she does. And again, if we're honest, we do the same thing. Like Jesus is really at this point, he's kind of poking at like what, what is the pain point? And then what does she want to do? She's like, hey, can we have a, can we have a bit of a theological uh, discussion here? I would say she's redirecting to religion. And so did you notice? I mean, she literally starts talking about it after Jesus, he names all of this. And she's like, I see that you're a prophet redirect, diversion, here we go. She's like, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. The human heart is always drawn to like, hey, I don't think I wanna look at this. Can you just tell me what's the right way to do things so I can just kind of know that like, I'm good with God? Can you just tell me sort of the things to, to put up, the barriers? Because that's maybe what I feel like I can control. And Jesus is like, what I'm after is a worship in spirit and truth. So it's not to say, just make up whatever you want, but he's saying, I'm blowing away all the categories. This, you're on one mountain, we're on the other mountain. He's like, it's all coming to an end because now the whole earth is gonna be filled with the presence of God. Like everything, even the church, is gonna be this temple of the living God. Jesus is saying, there's something so much better that awaits you. Maybe a way to think about this, though, because the human heart, I do think, is always drawn to just do what she does. Can we redirect? Can we look at the things that we can control? What if I do this? What if I do this? Or I put up these sort of boundaries. Like, you, you can read up on this, all right? Not that I am any sort of rancher, but like those that um, are out in the world, one of the things that they will tell you is that they've got hundreds and hundreds of acres. One could attempt to go and put a fence up, right? Like, well, I've got, I've got this livestock, I've got these animals, like I need to control that. And so you can either go one of two ways. You can literally try and put the fence up or you can dig the well. And the, the simple illustration here is that it becomes virtually impossible to just fence everything in. That's a religious mindset. Let's just put more fences. Let's do this so we can kind of define it. What Jesus is saying, what's being communicated and what a rancher might know is to be able to say, hey, if you just dig the well, if there's this source of life, the animals won't stray too far from that. They'll keep coming back to the source of life. So you don't have to put all the fences up. Just dig the well. Like, that is compelling. That's winsome enough. Like, that's what we're talking about with this invitation to a true Christianity is not all the fences and boxing everything in, but like the source of life that is Jesus. Do you know that? And this woman is starting to get it. And so let's look here as we, this last section then. If that's the conversation, if that's what Jesus is engaging in, what takes place now is the disciples, they ran off, you know, to get Jesus a snack, to get him some lunch, all right? They've shown back up, and as you can imagine, they are now sort of dumbstruck. They're like, uh, he's talking not only to a Samaritan, he's talking to a woman, 
and at noon. Like they're, they're kind of connecting the dots and they literally don't know what to do. Like it's one of the most awkward, it's kind of socially awkward scenes. They're like, oh, where do I go at the party? Where do I put my hands? Like they don't know what to do in this moment, right? And so um, maybe that's just me at a party. But anyway, here, we'll, we'll continue, all right? So verse 27 to, thir- to 42, it says this. Just then his disciples arrived, it says, and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you want? They don't ask Jesus or the woman anything. Or why are you talking with her? Then the woman at this point, she left her jar, went into town and told the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And because the disciples are continuing to take things at just a literal surface level, they've got this great response. Verse 33, they said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? Jesus hears them, knows what they're talking about. Verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four more months and then comes the harvest? Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes and look at the fields because they are ready for harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap what you didn't labor for. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. And then here's the response of the town as the woman has gone and communicated this. Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said, and they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said, since we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. A couple things. The disciples are getting a lesson here in what does mission look like? As we talk even of a church planting Sunday and our call, the call is to be disciples who make disciples and ultimately result in the planting of churches. We want to see the mission go forward. And what we're seeing here, and I made a reference to this early on, this woman doesn't suddenly have an interaction with Jesus and then go away to school for four or five years and make sure she gets all of, you know, gets answers to all of her questions and studies up. And I'm not saying any of those things are, are bad, But what does she do? She literally runs back into town. She leaves her water jar there and she runs back and says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. That's a weird evangelistic strategy, right? Like I've never trained in that way just to be like, come meet this person who told me everything that I ever did. For one, I don't want anybody to know everything that I've ever done, right? So what's happening here in this moment? Because At first, for her, I mean, what is she most fearful of? She doesn't want people to know what she's done because she knows they're already aware of some things. And so she goes to the well at noon. She wants to hide. She doesn't want to be exposed. And now the very thing she was terrified of, what is she doing? She's running back into town. She doesn't have all of the answers. She doesn't even know what to say other than this dude told me everything that I ever did. There must be something that's taking place in her heart that the grace of Jesus is being experienced in such a way that she's no longer enslaved to her past, but rather is like, this man told me everything that I've ever done. And I'm experiencing grace, not shame. And so I'm guessing you people in the town who just a few hours ago, I didn't even want to see your face. I didn't want you to see me. I was so ashamed. I was so broken. She's like, she doesn't care who hears now. The only thing that would empower that sort of response is what? It's not more offenses. It's she's met, she's beginning to drink deeply of the well, of the living water that is Jesus. That's what's gonna satisfy her soul. It's not like she's got everything perfectly in place. She literally is just like, I've met this guy, Jesus. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. It's only grace that would like, elicit that sort of response. Because for most of us, and by most, I mean all of us, right? To have somebody be like, I know everything you've ever done. Like, oh, okay, oh my gosh. Like, that's not really making me feel very empowered, right? I'm probably gonna wanna hide 
but it has the exact opposite response for her. And then Jesus, after she leaves, all right, so she goes on this evangelistic crusade and goes to say, here, come meet this guy, all right? Jesus has this interaction with his disciples. I know I need to wrap up here, but I would put before you, yes, he was super hungry. Yeah, at a physical level. And the disciples, because they're never getting it at the, you know, kind of the first try, which I find great encouragement in, because I would have been like them, like, oh, were there snacks in his backpack? Did we miss something, right? Did, maybe we, he didn't like the sandwich we got him. I don't know. So they're like, what, what do you mean? Why don't you just eat something? But Jesus is saying, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. He's nourished by the mission. Like, he's so caught up in what the Father has called him to do that he's like, the satisfying work? Yeah, sandwich would be great. Yeah, that, that's, that's fine. But what is ultimately satisfying is when we meet Jesus and then we engage and join him in the work that he's called us to do, to be disciples who help make disciples, to extend the love and the grace that we've received to other people. And it may be as put together as like, come meet the person who told me everything I ever did. Maybe that's all you've got. But it was enough. I mean, an entire town begins to be transformed because she declared those words. And Jesus then begins to ask a question to the disciples. I would say he asks it of us. He's just like, hey, what do you see when you look out? Do you see a big, bad world that's completely broken and jacked up and you know it's all going to hell and that's just sort of like, you should just kind of retreat from it? Or do you see that there's a field, that the fields are being ripened and that there's a harvest that you and I get to participate in? Do you see the ripened fields? And Jesus is saying, that's what I see when I look out. And I'm inviting you to participate. In no way, shape, or form, Jesus does not need me. He does not need you. But he invites us into this mission. And he's saying, this is so great to be nourished by the will of God to be able to participate in this. And then how it ends, it tells us that the whole town starts coming back. And they believe. Now many Samaritans from that town believed. And I love that it started with because they even acknowledge it. We believed in him because of what the woman said. So her evangelistic strategy, he knows everything I ever did. Come and meet him. He might know everything you ever did. Apparently that's winsome. And so they, they come. But then it tells us they begin having conversation with Jesus, even just practically, to just tell people, hey, I don't have all the answers. I, we do have God's word. Why, why don't you interact with Jesus? Why don't you try talking to him? What, what if we just gave people opportunity to hear more of the word of God and we just tell our part of the story. Like, hey, this is what I've experienced. And so church, this is what we get to, this is what we get to play, play in, participate in. People that meet Jesus, who've tasted it, who are having their thirst quenched, then in turn just go and tell other people. But I think the only thing that will sustain us in that, because we could get, you know, Maybe we get fired up and we think, oh yeah, let's go plant churches and let's, let's do this. Where do I sign up for that? But the only thing that's going to sustain us is, again, coming back to Jesus and looking at his life and realizing this truth, that there on the cross at one point, Jesus cried out, I thirst. And it's only because we have a thirsting savior that you and I are actually able to have our thirst quenched. When Jesus says, I thirst, what he's referencing there on the cross is he's making reference to Psalm 22. And you hear these words, I am poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. It's because the God-man Jesus lived a completely perfect, righteous, sinless life, a life you and I are called to live, but we have failed miserably at. But he goes and he dies in our place. He gets the punishment that we deserve, that he cries out, I thirst. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you and I could be brought into the family, so that you and I could actually experience the the living water that wells up from within, that we can be part of this movement, and that we now actually get to help see this go forward, not in our own strength, but we actually get to be those that help plant churches and share the good news of Jesus, like the woman at the well. To the extent that we realize how much God has done in our life, it will lead to us loving and serving 
other people. And I'll close with this. The great Charles Spurgeon said it this way about the thirst of our God, the thirst of our Jesus. And he said this, Christ is always thirsting after the salvation of precious souls. And that cry on the cross that thrilled all who listened to it was the outburst of the great heart of Jesus Christ as he saw the multitude and he cried unto his God, I thirst. He thirsted to redeem mankind. He thirsted to accomplish the work of our salvation. This very day, he thirsts still in that respect as he is still willing to receive those who come to him, still resolved that such, that such as come shall never be cast out and still desirous that they may come. May we be the type of church that desires to participate in the mission of Jesus, realizing the grace and the mercy, the living water that we're invited to drink of, and that we would in turn offer that to other people so that God would get his glory and that we would have the nourishing, sustaining joy of getting to participate in this mission. So let me pray for us as the worship team comes up. We have an opportunity. If you're a follower of Christ, here in this, this room, come up and grab the communion elements during the next song and we'll partake together after the song ends. If you're at home, we'd invite you, if you're a follower of Christ, to get the elements and, and gather them together. But be thinking through this. Like, what is it in the next few moments? Like, what do you need to confess? What have, what idols have a grip on your heart? And then celebrate the grace of God. Let's ask together, what would it look like if we committed to being the kinds of people and a church community that broke the social boundaries and went to those, said, hey, I've met Jesus, and I'd like to introduce you to him. Like, what would it look like to be that kind of community? So let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you're a God of all mercy and grace, that you're ascending God that sent your son Jesus. And Jesus, because you were sent, we can now embrace that as part of our identity as a sent people. So we thank you that in the same way you went to a Samaritan woman at the well in the heat of the day, that you continue to move towards us, that you offer us living water, and that your grace, it runs downhill, that it goes into the very cracks and crevices and the spaces that, God, we don't even want to talk about. Your grace reaches down there, and we can't exhaust your grace. As so we thank you for that reality. God, I pray for us individually and collectively that we would be a church that just marvels at the grace of God. I pray that we would see men, women, and, and children move from death to life, that they would experience the living water. And I pray that you would help us to be faithful to play our part, sustained by your power, your grace, by your, your spirit. But God, would you use us in this time, in this place, to reach a community, to point people to Jesus, to help us plant more churches so there might be more disciples that are made. And God, would you do it for your glory and for our joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.